This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. The Sam and Rose Stein Institute for Research on Aging is committed to advancing lifelong health and well-being through research, professional training, patient care, and community service. As a nonprofit organization at the University of California San Diego School of Medicine, our research and educational outreach activities are made possible by the generosity of private donors. It is our vision that successful aging will be an achievable goal for everyone. To learn more, please visit our website at aging.ucsd.edu. So this is the first slide which she really shared with you all the um, titles I have the honor of having and the title of the talk as well. So this um, effort really stemmed, um, I'm going to say began in the rest of the world where they spell aging differently than we do here in the U.S. So you'll see different spellings of aging throughout the presentation. Uh, So this is what I'll be discussing today. Um, The main topics are Who's interested in global healthy aging and why does it matter? What is the World Health Organization or WHO definition of healthy aging? What is the UN? We'll spend much of the time talking about this UN Decade of Healthy Aging Initiative. We'll spend a minute talking about the Age Well San Diego Initiative. And we'll have um, five different polls scattered throughout. These are um, opportunities for you to answer questions that I have, multiple choice questions that I like just to make it a little more interactive. And we'll go over the answers. All of this, of course, is anonymous. So why does um, global um, healthy aging matter? So the world is very interested in this topic. Um, Many organizations and, and companies are interested in this. Um, It's because population aging is one of the most significant social transformations of the 21st century. And it has implications for, I'm going to say, all sectors of society, including health, labor, financial markets, demands for goods and services, and also has great implications for family structures and intergenerational ties. This, um, I put up this slide because it refers to a publication that came out in 2017 by the National Institute um, on Aging, which is excellent and provided me an introduction to this topic. Um, As I said, companies are interested in this topic, so um, including pharmaceutical companies. So here's just a couple of examples of um, companies that have made healthy aging one of the areas of focus. And here, um, before I begin some more with facts, this is a um, publication by the National Academy of Medicine, and it's called Global Roadmap for Healthy Longevity. Um, So this is a pretty new publication, and it reviews international efforts. It is an international effort, you'll see on the slide here, to achieve healthy longevity, which they define as the state in which years in good health approach the biological lifespan with physical, cognitive, and social functioning, therefore enabling well-being across populations. So this is a theme you'll see repeated regularly throughout this this talk. And the principles for achieving healthy longevity is the summary of this uh, roadmap is that one, people of all ages, particularly older adults, 
reach their full potential to live life with good health, function, meaning, purpose, and dignity. Two, that society has enabled the best health and functioning that individuals at all ages are capable of attaining. Three, society's reduced disparities and enhanced equity within and among countries to realize the well-being and contributions of all people, including those of older ages. Four, the human financial and social capital of older people is realized for the benefit of all society. And five, societies use data and meaningful metrics to track the achievement of outcomes and guide decision-making. So with that you know, lofty um, introduction of what this, um, it, this, these initiatives are, or the theme of this talk, we'll go into some data now. So these are population pyramids. Um, a population pyramid, for those of you not familiar with this, is a graphical representation of the distribution of the population by sex and age group. So in this diagram here, I have the world population in different times. So top left is 1950, top right is 1990, bottom is 2020 on the left, and bottom right is 2050, which is uh, predicted. And so you can see here, and, and yellow is the, it depicts uh, female gender, blue, male gender, and the lowest part of the pyramid is um, the number of younger people, and then the highest part of the pyramid is older adults. So where it gets a little darker in color, that's where you see is 65 and up. And the breadth of the pyramid is really the population number in the world. So you can see in 1950, it really looks like a pyramid. It was um, narrow, it was a smaller size population, roughly, you know, gender equivalence between men and women that sort of persists. And we see here that relative to the younger population, there's quite, you know, many smaller older adults. And you can also see that over time, the shape of the pyramid is shifting to more of like a dome, um, a pointy dome um, over time, which gets accentuated, you know, to, to 2050. And so to give you some, you know, numbers here, in 1950, there was no single country that had more than 11% of its population age 65 and older. But in 2050, it's estimated that countries that do have the highest proportion of older adults will have up to 38% of their country's population be age 65 and older. So to get into a little more detail with this, this, this is a graphical representation of the, um, the percentage of the population in the world who will be age 65 and older at various you know, times. So you can see in 1950, it's you know, pretty low and then it gradually climbs. We're here in 2020-ish. And then it you know, gets even uh, more serious slope um, over time. So a faster growing uh, proportion of the population age 65 and older. So in 2020, there was an, there was an estimated uh, 727 million persons age 65 and older worldwide. And by 2050, this number is predicted to more than um, double, reaching over 1.5 billion persons age 65 and older. Um, the share of older persons in the global population is expected to increase from 9.3% in 2020 to 16% in 2050, which is one in six persons. So globally, the population age 65 and older is growing faster than all other age groups. 
So this is large part of the reason why the world cares about aging populations. So what are the demographic drivers of population aging? Um, to put it simply, it's fertility, mortality, and migration. One of the bigger contributors to this then is the uh, fertility. So fertility is declining globally. This means there's fewer people in younger age groups, so leaving in more age groups having older, you know, no, bigger numbers, and so an older population. Um, also, mortality is improving, so increased survival or mortality is decreasing. Increased survival means, again, more people living longer, so more people in older age groups. And a smaller contributor to this worldwide, but certainly has major impact in individual countries, is migration. So international migration, people who are younger tend to be migrants. So if you move into a country, you're going to typically be a younger person, and that can slow population aging in the country that you know, receives the, the, um, the migrants. And this can be perhaps just a temporary change, but it can reduce that overall age group of the country people are immigrating into. So next, we're going to our first poll. The question is, which of these countries has the largest percentage of people aged 65 years and older? So choose one, Greece, Spain, or Japan. Okay, so we have 86% uh, for Japan. Okay. For Spain and 9% for Greece. All right, we've got a very educated audience. Okay, so you're correct. The um, answer is Japan is number one. Japan is been number one for a while. It has the um, biggest proportion of older adults in its population. Um, this is followed by, in this list, Greece and then Spain. Um, to give you a little more data, um, so Japan's number one. Number two is Italy with 23%. So Japan's, you know, is quite a bit more than, than Italy. And then there's a three-way tie between Greece, Finland, and Portugal, all at 22%. And Spain is number three. And just to put in context, the United States um, has 16% of its population in um, 2020, age 65 and older. All right. So this is a depiction of the um, uh, another way to look at um, global uh, aging. And so here you can see different colors on these maps. And so the Populations with the highest percentage of older adults are more in the green aqua color. Um, and then populations with lower percentages become more yellow. And so you can see that's quite heterogeneous among different um, countries, the proportion of older adults. You know, it's, it's really in some ways quite remarkable. So global aging is something of concern and also wonderment for us because you know, with more older adults, we have more wisdoms and, and we have more, you know, wonderful characteristics of older adults and all they contribute to society. And some of the, but some of the negative challenges of aging, which many of us experience is that there's more disability, there's more disease and potentially more need for caregiving. So these are some of the challenges of global aging. There are many, many wonderful opportunities, but there's also many challenges. It, it's also notable that um, related to the demographics again, low and middle income countries are now have a, they have a smaller proportion of the population. So, you know, much of Africa, India, even China, um, they have a lower proportion of older adults, but they have the biggest number of older adults. So as these countries evolve, they're going to be the um, drivers of population aging. All right. 
So moving on to this idea of healthy aging um, and initiatives. So healthy aging was the focus of the World Health Organization's work on aging between 2015 and 2020. It still is, but this was one aspect of it or one version of it. Um, it emphasized the need for action across multiple sectors, as well as enabling older people to remain a resource to their families, communities, and economies. It had this wonderful infographic you could get as a poster. I still love this infographic. Um, so they started this work again in 2015. So their definition of aging is a little different than the one I shared earlier um, from the National Academies of Medicine. And they define healthy aging as the process of developing and maintaining the functional ability that enables well-being in older age. And functional ability is about having the, the capabilities that enable all people to be and do what they reason to value. So this includes a person's ability to meet their basic needs, so self-care needs, to learn, grow, and make decisions. For example, it's, some of that relates to your cognitive capacity. To be mobile, so to get around as you need to, either you know, on your own or with some help from like an assistive device such as a cane. To build and maintain relationships, so really maintain social connectivity and to contribute to society in all the ways that older people do. So some examples are through working, volunteering, other wonderful ways. So functional ability, how is this defined? Um, as a geriatrician, I view it as, you know, what you can do for yourself. Can you, can you do your self-care activities? Can you do the activities in the, you know, in the community you need to do? And do you do other activities that are really, you know, for the value to yourself or, and society? Um, but in this way, they talk about functional abilities made up of your intrinsic capacity um, of the individual and the relevant environmental characteristics as well as the interaction between them. So intrinsic capacity is, you know, all the capacities that you have um, mentally, physically, um, including your ability to walk, think, hear, see, and it's influenced often by disease, um, injury, and age-related change. Environments include your home, your community, broader society, and so it involves things like the built environment. So are you able to get around because the environment enhances that? Are there good sidewalks for you to take walks on? Is there green space for you to play in? Um, also social policies and systems that impact your ability to, to do things and live well. Um, so all this is related to your functional ability. And then um, key considerations in healthy aging are that um, diversity and inequity. So there's no typical older person. That's one of the reasons I love geriatric medicine so much is that it is so heterogeneous. So some older people, 70, 80, 90, have very high levels of physical and you know, cognitive or mental capacity that compare favorably with many younger people, like 30-year-olds. And other 80, 90-year-olds have, have need much more support for basic activities like eating and dressing. So it's quite variable. Um, inequity. So large proportion of the diversity in capacity and circumstances observed in older people is a result of the cumulative impact of advantage and disadvantage across people's lives. So the relationships we have with our environments are shaped by factors such as the family we were born into, our sex, our race, ethnicity, level of education, financial resources, and more. So healthy aging, again, is about creating environments and opportunities that enable people to be and do what they value throughout their lives. 
And I highlighted this to, to really make the point that everybody can experience healthy aging. Being disease, free of disease or any kind of infirmity is not a requirement for healthy aging. Um, many people live with conditions that have you know, no influence or little influence on their well-being. So it is not the absence of disease. It is really a unique attribute that everyone has or can have. So moving on to the next part, this is really um, want to talk about the UN Decade for Healthy Aging, which built on the prior work that went from 2015 to 2020. Now we're moving into 2021 through 30. So the Decade of Healthy Aging is a global collaboration that brings together government, civil society. You see all the list. It's a huge, it's like everything is brought together as much as possible to engage in 10 years of concerted, catalytic, and collaborative action to improve the lives of older people, their families, and the communities in which they live. So it has um, four action areas, and they are first to ensure that communities foster the abilities of older people, that they change how we think, feel, and act towards age and aging. We deliver person-centered integrated care and primary health services responsive to older people and provide access to long-term care for older people who need it. So these are where they want to go and are working on. So let's talk about the first one. It's simply named um, Age-Friendly Environments. And um, so you can see here that we've sort of talked about this a bit, a, a bit already. So health and well-being are influenced by the physical and social environments in which we live. Environments help determine our physical and mental capacity across our lives and also how well we adjust to loss of function and other forms of adversity over our lives. Um, both older people and the environments um, in which they live are diverse, dynamic, and changing, and the interaction of both may enable or constrain healthy aging. So part of this is, is addressing social determinants of healthy aging, such as um, improving access to lifelong learning, removing barriers to um, retaining and hiring older workers, providing adequate pensions, social assistance, and reducing inequity. Um, so far, the work of the um, UN um, decade has um, included a creation of a global network for age-friendly cities and communities, um, and um, developing a mentoring program to enable people to do this work, and a, a wonderful database of age-friendly practices, which again is global. So for example, some of the age-friendly um, environment work has included um, improving bicycle safety in places where you know all ages use bicycles to get around as their primary source of transportation. Another example is a um, program that for people age 75 and older, it provides um, free handyman services for their home. So pretty neat stuff they're working on. Okay, next we're gonna do our um, the next poll, which is um, which of the following are examples of age-friendly environments? Um, you can pick multiple, so it's yes or no for each of them. So I can read it too. It's an emergency department that asks caregivers to wait outside to prevent crowding, bus drivers who are able to assist those with mobility limitations, intergenerational social events during the evening that require private transportation, public housing with narrow hallways and dim lighting, pedestrian crossing indicators that announce when it's safe to cross and allow enough time to, for mobility impaired persons to cross safely, and providing information in print and broadcast media, as well as through social media and online sources. So you can pick as many as you want. 
relatively few pick number one. That's true. We, you know, leaving the caregivers outside is, is good for preventing crowding, but not really great for care of the older adult in there. Um, bus drivers assisting, that was answered by 93%. Terrific, yes. Intergenerational social events, of course, is wonderful, but um, having them at night and requiring your own car to get there is not so wonderful. So 29% chose that. Um, public housing, narrow hallways, dim lighting, you know, to, again, might be difficult to get through the hallway depending on your mobility issue. Dim lighting is bad for everybody. So only 4% picked that. Pedestrian crossing indicators that announce when it's safe to cross, allow sufficient time, that's a good thing. 90% um, pick that. And providing information in various formats for people to um, access is also good. 80% pick that. Thank you. All right. So the next topic um, is combating ageism. So ageism is um, stereotyping of, um, which is really how we think is stereotyping. Um, prejudice against, that's how we feel and discrimination towards how we act, people. So ageism is the stereotyping prejudice against and discrimination towards people because of their age. Ageism affects people of all ages, but it's particularly deleterious effects on older people. So this is getting a lot of traction, thank goodness. So ageism is highly prevalent. However, unlike other forms of discrimination, including sexism and racism, it is socially accepted and usually unchallenged because it is largely implicit and subconscious in nature. Children as young as four are aware of their culture's age stereotypes. These stereotypes focus predominantly on the negative aspects of aging with older age typecast as an inevitable decline in physical and mental capacities and a period of dependency. Language and media, including film, television, popular music, print, social media, most often echo and reinforce these stereotypes because ageist depictions tend to be the norm. And as we get older, we experience ageism um, from others, but also from ourselves because of the unconscious internalization of society's negative attitudes and stereotypes towards older people. This helps to explain why older people, um, you know, often try to quote unquote, stay young, and, and um, feel shame about getting older and limit what they think they can do instead of taking pride in the accomplishment of aging. So um, ageism has been shown to have a significant impact on older adults' participation in society, health, society and, and on their health and on their longevity. Um, those who, so one study looked at this, um, or many have, but this particular study I'm citing said, found that those who held negative attitudes on aging had slower recovery from disability. They live on average seven and a half years less than those who hold positive attitudes and are less likely to be socially integrated. So ageism is bad. Um, it also imposes barriers to the development of good policies on aging and health as it influences the way problems are framed, the questions that are asked and the solutions that are offered. And in this context, age is often understood as a sufficient justification for treating people unequally and limiting their opportunities for meaningful contribution. So next poll, what are some of the ways you have experienced or observed ageism? You can select as many as you want. Here's the answers. 
they're all examples of ageism. Um, so the, the, even the sweetie one, believe it or not. So, so, so negative statements about older people, that's of course ageism. Products that are designed without regard for changes that occur with aging, this is incredibly predominant. Um, anything that's called anti-aging, um, you know, that's prevent what natural, what we are and so amazing that we can be aging. Um, being called sweetie uh, is also a version of ageism, a little less obvious. Um, saying you look good for your age. And then assuming older people don't have sex or can't use technologies and other, other examples. Most of you picked all of these um, with a minority being called sweetie, 38%, and anything anti-aging, 52%. All right. So um, the third um, focus of this effort is um, improving the integration of health services. And so um, older people require, we all do, in fact, non-discriminatory access to good quality essential health services that include really a, a wide range of, of, um, of services. Um, so prevention, promotion, curative, rehabilitative, palliative, and end-of-life care. Safe, affordable, effective, good quality essential medicines and vaccines. And dental care and health and assistive technologies and all at a price that is feasible. So this could be, um, you know, something that none of us have seen, um, but it is a it is a goal. Um, so let's get into the um, um, and and what we've also what I've noticed in healthcare, you probably have too, is that many health systems, including our own in the U.S., is set up really to take care of acute conditions, you know, um, and individual conditions, but is less good at, at addressing issues that are common with aging that are into, that are you know, relate to each other, age conditions or age associated conditions that um, that come together and need to be managed together. Um, so problems with heart and kidney and vision and hearing. So addressing all those things often in in working to address them well together, not as separate entities. Um, primary care, strengthening primary care is a focus of this work. Um, and um, there are many examples. Again, I'll show you some more uh, information on um, this and how to see what the uh, UN is doing in this regard. So this is the fourth poll. Um, so which of the following are ways to address health service and systems meeting older adults' needs? So which are the ways that we can improve these things? And you can choose multiple again. All right, here are the answers. So only one, almost, you know, no one chose the first. So limiting is kind of a cue. Um, access to hearing aids and dental care is, is not a great way. Um, telemedicine visits with technical support. So note the technical support um, is a good thing. Uh, colon cancer screening for everyone. 79% um, of you um, chose that one. That's actually not a... Um, a recommendation. So it's um, because it, it, you need a lead time of at least 10 years for, for um, colon cancer screening to be useful. And so if you reach, you know, 90, then colon cancer screening is not really going to be useful because most people aren't going to live to 100. And there's definitely some risk to getting um, colon cancer screening, like which usually occurs via colonoscopy. So um, the recommendation um, is to quit at age 75 for screening. Um, if you already have something they found like a polyp and you need additional screening later and you're in good shape, yes, keep it going. Um, it's more of a surveillance as opposed to screening function at that point. I'll be offered. So the rest, you really got these last two, too. These these um, these last two are also part of um, 
good care for older people. All right. So the last of the um, of the areas that they're working on is long-term care. Declines in function can limit older people's ability to care for themselves and to participate in society. Um, access to rehabilitation, assistive technologies, and supportive, inclusive environments can help. Um, but even so, some of us will get to the place where we can no longer care for ourselves without support and assistance. So access to good quality long-term care is essential to maintain function, enjoy basic human rights, and to live with dignity. So um, one of the things that needs to be done to support this goal is to um, increase the capacity of informal caregiving. Um, and some of the other activities that the um, UN Decade for Healthy Aging is, is engaging is providing technical support uh, for, you know, an analysis of different countries so they can figure out what they have for long-term care and what they need to, to provide. Um, and they're designing tools and guidance for you know, good packages of long-term care as part of universal health coverage, um, providing online resources for informal caregivers, um, and um, other activities to really Im improve this. Okay, so our last poll, which of the following are ways to address access to long-term care to improve it? So um, these are the answers. So the minority view picked the first one, which is expand fee-for-service care. Although it does have virtues, it's a truth. It's not great for um, long-term care uh, because it's really long-term care um, is not included in, in fee-for-service care um, typically. Uh, but other things that can help address the access to long-term care is to help professionals understand what long-term care settings can be and what um, long-term care um, support can look like. And then um, another thing that can help is to facilitate communication between um, primary care doctors, specialty care of all types, primary care of all types, and long-term care systems. So um, it can be difficult to um, communicate between systems, and that is a barrier to care. Um, so now the way it works is you can be connected, for example, with your primary care and the specialists and the same health system can be connected. But long-term care, like I'm talking nursing home care in this, this context, is there's zero connection between that. So it just makes it, it, makes it difficult. All right. So to support this work, in the UN um, Decade for Healthy um, Aging, um, they have come up with uh, what they call decade enablers. Um, so these are things to um, help make this all happen. So they have four different versions of that or levels of that. And first is um, voice and engagement. So as part of this platform, uh, which you can all access, if you can just look up UN Decade of Healthy Aging, I have a link in the bottom of the slide here, is in having people connect directly with them. So having people tell their stories, provide information, um, you know, support each other. Um, one, of the, one of the examples they have is they have an initiative called um, the Healthy Aging 50, which includes the stories and work of 50 leaders transforming the world to be a better place to grow older is what they have in their site. Um, next one is leadership and capacity building. Um, so really help um, improve governance 
to develop appropriate laws, policies, financial resources, and to support stakeholders to develop competencies. So if you go to this part of the website, they have toolkits to do all of these things and other resources for anyone to access. Next is connecting stakeholders, so across sectors and disciplines to leverage resources, share learning and experience and act. And then finally, strengthening research data and innovation um, to help inform and drive uh, action to foster healthy aging. Again, many resources on this site to help make all of this um, work. All right, so I wanna spend um, just this slide on our local initiative here in San Diego called Age Well San Diego. And so it was developed at the direction of the San Diego County Board of Supervisors in 2016. Um, the county applied to join the World Health Organization and AARP's network of age-friendly communities, and it became also a um, dementia-friendly America community partner. Um, so uh, Age Well San Diego is, is the marriage of these two things, um, San, in San Diego County, age-friendly and dementia-friendly equals age-well San Diego. Um, so they, what they, they have four different or five different, you know, areas. Um, so first is health and community support. This encourages the development of community support systems. So I don't know if you've heard of the village model. It's a model which in communities are more sort of more formally engaged to help each other. Also for the number two is housing. Housing is implementing, one example is implementing zoning and design requirements that create accessible mixed use communities um, that have a variety of housing types and services. The third is social participation. So to create policies that facilitate, in this case, intergenerational engagement. For transportation, one of the ideas they have in, are working on is developing a coordinated um, innovative rideshare mobility system for all users. And by dementia friendly, they incorporate all the um, elements in the other four. So um, to a dementia friendly um, community, to define it, is one in which people are aware of and understand dementia so that people with dementia can continue to live in the community they choose and in the way they want to. And also to support this effort recently, I think it's going to be in the paper in the next day or two, um, the county has appointed its first ever um, geriatric health officer to support these activities. Um, so that is a wonderful thing. And um, yeah, I'm very happy about that. Okay, so takeaways from this talk. The world's population is aging. Um, healthy aging can be defined as maintaining function to enable well-being in older age. The UN Decade for Healthy Aging is a global effort intended to improve the lives of older people, their families, and communities. And uh, the platform um, related to that is a means of connecting and informing stakeholders to achieve the goals of the UN Decade for Healthy Aging. And Age Well San Diego is our local version of this work um, that is... Um, is on its way. All right. So I just want to end by thanking you so very much for being here today. I look forward to taking your questions. Um, and uh, Global Aging is a wonderful opportunity um, for us to do good works and celebrate aging people. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for such a fantastic talk. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I know the attendees did as well. And we have some questions. 
Um, I really loved how at the beginning of your talk, you talked about how healthy aging is not about the absence of disease or disability. I think that's such an important piece for people to remember. I'm curious for you as a clinician, um, how do you, what do you recommend to your patients in order to stay as healthy as they can? So there are a lot of things and the audience could inform us further. I know you could, but this, what I'd like to say is that it's important to um, stay physically, cognitively, and socially engaged. Um, use it or lose it is a truth. And so it is really important to stay socially connected, to be physically active, and to um, use your brain. That's kind of the the big things I say, in addition to this, you know, other health related stuff, do your preventive health stuff, you know, take your medications if they're, you know, um, if you need any, um, that kind of thing. But the, the big three is just use it, just think, use it or lose it. That's great. Thank you so much. I, I experienced that all the time. I, I believe in that as well. Okay. So question from the audience is, it goes back to the first poll, Dr. Moore. Why does Japan have the highest number of people over 65? Good question. I'm not sure I know the exact answer to that. Um, I think it has, must have to do with, again, the issue with fertility and um, mortality. So they were, they, again, I don't know the exact answer, but I can imagine it's because they had a potentially lower fertility, you know, smaller population growth um, over time. And that's why it's aged more quickly than some of the other countries. Okay. So here's another question that I don't know you'll know the answer to, but we'll try. Do you know what the percent of people um, is that have experienced discrimination, age discrimination? That's statistic. Everybody, every I think one hundred percent. If you look at the the examples of ageism, it's 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 and we do self ageism, so it's 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 everywhere. I think it's one hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is a question about colon cancer screening. Um, there's a comment and a question. Colon cancer screening can be done uh, by using the FIT test, which is a simple, which is simple and done by patients at home and carries absolutely no risk. Would you support that in folks past 75? Now, I'm not familiar with what the FIT test is. Maybe we have to clarify that as well. I know what that is. It's, it's a, well, it's, it's FO, we call it FOBT. It's fecal occult blood test. Um, that's the one I think that they're referring to. And it's where you take some um, of your stool and put it on a card and they test it for blood. Um, so the thing about that, though, is if it's positive, that means it has blood in it. You're still in a set of you still need a colonoscopy and that definitely has risk associated with it. So um, no form of colon cancer screening is recommended um, really for, again, screening, not surveillance. After That's the official recommendation, 75 and up based on evidence. No benefit after that time. OK, thank you. Uh, here's another question. I believe you mentioned a mentor mentorship program connected to the UN initiative. Can you expand on this, please? So I'd have to read more about it. And I do 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 encourage you to go to the um, UN Decade for Healthy Aging website where there's an unbelievable amount of material. What this website provides is a toolkit, a community, you know, tons of information. So one of the, one of the ideas or things that they're working on is this mentorship program. Okay, here is a question that I know is very near and dear to your heart, Dr. Moore. How would you like to see geriatric medicine incorporated into medical education in order to improve care for older adults in future years? So, uh, yes, thank you for that question. Um, you know, it, it, so I think that, 
It's been a shame, I'm going to say, in my career that over time, there haven't been more people that go into geriatrics specifically. There's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, but every most every single doctor will care for older people. And they're not going to be geriatricians because they're just like there's 7,000 of us. So what we want to do in medical education is make the students aware of the, you know, the the important things that we see with older adults, that they are, um, again, many of the things we've talked about in this talk, having a number of illnesses does not make you, you know, impaired, necess you know, necessarily. Thinking about illnesses as a holistic approach to caring for someone is super important. You can't just say, okay, I'm going to treat the diabetes in this way and the heart disease in this way and the kidney disease in this way. And, then, and, and so really thinking about an integrated approach and holistic approach to caring for the person is necessary. And I think having um, positive role models for both aging, which we do see all the time in healthcare, as, and positive um, in terms of both the patients and the providers. So providers need to be, you know, I would say it gets difficult when you're stressed and busy and, you know, older adults aren't, um, I love it, that, but they tend not to have like one problem or, you know, no problems. They have multiple problems and that can be overwhelming for some people and that can then turn into, uh, uh, you know, so having positive role models for taking care of older people um, and being really, it's, it's bad to say, I never, I tell people, my patients, you never want to be interesting to a doctor, but doctors like interesting stuff. And so older people often have interesting stuff. So sort of bringing the positive back to it. What, what is positive about caring for older people, interacting with older people, or role models? I think that's great. It's like the focus that our center has been, which is on the things that go right within, with aging and right. help enhance those things. Right. And take care of the things that don't go right. But, you know, also yeah. I tell people how you age is often how you manage. So there's all this stuff that's gets better with age, you know, wisdom, your experience and all that. But there's stuff that happens to all of us. Like you get, you know, muscle aches and pains. You get some conditions that start. I have hearing loss, I've got, you know, osteoarthritis. But it's how you handle it. I think that sometimes I see is the difference between, um, you know, aging in a way that's, you know, healthy and aging in ways that are less healthy. Yes. It's one of the reasons why we developed an intervention to help enhance resilience, right? Our ability to adapt to adversity, you know, contributes to longevity as well. Yes. Very, very true. So we have a question, Dr. Moore, on um, people with serious mental illnesses and um, the impact that that might have on them aging well. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, again, if you don't have I think it's, again, this idea of intrinsic and extrinsic, so um, environment and intrinsic capacity. So you may have um, internal, you know, troubles with physical and or mental health, um, and it's how, in part, how you're supported in community, society, your home that can determine how well you do, um, and in part, it's how well you personally can manage to. So serious mental illness is a, um, is a challenge, and it's like many illnesses going to have ups and downs often with how, you know, people are doing. And I think it's a, you know, a combination of things that can make people do well or not, which, um, as I said, is both what the person can do for themselves and what their support system can do. And do they have a support system? Okay. Okay, great. 
So um, this is actually a, a really fantastic comment, which I'll read. Uh, more than a comment, more a comment than a question. I fall into the aging category, but have not really experienced ageism. I often spend time with others in my age group and we share many laughs about the aging process that we are experiencing. So, you know, a positive anecdote yes. on that. Um, okay. So this is um, a question on nutrition education and how it affects disease. Okay. So that's that a question. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Somebody's asked about nutrition education and how it affects disease. It's a little right, general, right. but I think you could probably speak to this. Yeah. Um, yeah. So nutrition hasn't been something I'm going to say is traditionally part, a strong component of medical education. It's probably changing now than it was certainly when I went to medical school. Um, we are, you know, taught, uh, you know, we're still, to be frank, very focused on, okay, what medication can we use? What, you know, education intervention can we provide? Yes, nutrition's important. I can give you some basic tips, um, but if we need like serious, inter, inter, you know, serious information then I'm going to send you to somebody else typically, right? Or send you to some resources. So, um, so nutrition is, you know, of course, extremely important for our health um, in terms of, you know, not only what types of foods we eat and um, how much we eat, um, but, I, you know, so it's probably a bigger part of education than when I last, you know, experienced it myself. So again, an important thing. There's so many important things in education now. And, uh, th I think it's again, a, so much education is also not just in the medical space, right? It's public health and it's policies. So, you know, when they started, um, if you're, was a restaurant chain of a certain size, you had to start putting the calorie count and the, um, you know, food labels and different things and the, so it's 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 really a I'm going to say so much of health is is more than just that you know in out it's really outside the context of the medical space it's really a much bigger space. Okay, thank you. And we just have time for a few more questions. Um, at what age would you stop colonoscopies being being done for surveillance? You know, so most of the time, if you're going to get a surveillance, they say five years, rarely three years. It's mostly five years. So I'd say if your life expectancy doesn't look like it's going to exceed five years, I would not do it anymore. And there's a lot of um, ways to calculate um, life expectancy. There's something called eprognosis.com uh, that can help with that. Um, you know, so it, it's, it's really a, it's sort of a, if your life expectancy is less than five years now. And then um, our final question, which I think speaks to so many of us uh, on the Zoom today, how can we have an impact on this field? I would say um, by doing what you're doing, showing up and learning and um, engaging uh, in all kinds of ways um, to promote healthy aging, you know, in yourselves, in your communities, in your families. And sort of the mantra of this talk is that it, it's a, it's a, it's an effort that everyone can be part of and ideally should be part of. And if you go to the website, you'll see examples from other countries too, as I've mentioned a couple, quite remarkable. And they have all these online communities. So nowadays we'll be a, you know, online is a, you're all online, so you're doing it. Um, it it's, it's it, you know, it's a worldwide community now more than ever because of our ability to connect in so many different ways. But, you know, starting with your self-level, local level, and then you can go, this, this talk has international. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Moore, for such an 
informative talk. I want to thank all of you for attending our event tonight. And with that, we hope to see you all as we launch our new lecture series at the beginning of 2023. Until then, take good care of yourself and we look forward to seeing you next year. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.